when a boy goes out partying with his girlfriend, he's entitled to sex. Sexually assaulting a 22-year-old woman while she lay unconscious next to a dumpster. Peeling off and discarding my underwear like a candy wrapper to insert your finger into my body is where you went wrong. Sex trafficking of children in this country has become a nationwide problem. I remember him just really brutally beating me and raping me. He started taking pictures of me and I heard him starting to call people and telling them, hey, I have this girl here. You can come do whatever you want to her. And I was numbing my pain with, with alcohol, with self-harm, with eating disorders. We live in a world where sexual violence is normalized. The culture and programs that we have in the United States are not working. So I am bringing in a completely different approach. We are breaking stigmas. Promoting sexual health and acceptance. You are holding change in your hands. This is Talk Taboo with your host, Taylor Stafford. Hello and welcome to another episode of Talk Taboo with your host Taylor Stafford. We are tackling societal sexual taboos and stigmas in order to prevent sex crimes in the United States. Thanks for tuning in again. I've got a ton of positive feedback about our last episode at our TLC fundraiser, so I want to thank you guys for that. I might try and actually do things kind of like that more often where I ask everybody in a place the same questions and then kind of compare them and then also put it into like an educational episode as well. So we're going to try and incorporate that since everyone liked that so much. And then um, I want to do a fun fact because this is going to be put out before Christmas and probably the last one I put out before Christmas. Um, I know there's a lot of thoughts and um, beliefs that the suicide rate goes up before Christmas and the holidays just from the social pressure, pressure with work, um, family pressures, all of that kind of thing. But I pulled up some studies and Psychology Today compacted all of these studies that have been done about that. Let me quote uh, what they said about that. So it says, for starters, there is solid evidence that despite long-held beliefs and often erroneous media coverage, the suicide rate in the United States does not spike around the holidays. According to the U.S. Center for Health Statistics, the suicide rate is the highest between April and August. The months of November, December, and January actually had the lowest daily suicide rates. I, that was pretty surprising for me because I know that the holidays can be extremely tough for people who have familial issues, finance issues, all of that kind of stuff combined. However, um, we do know that depression and anxiety can increase in these times for those people that do have those risk factors of familial problems, uh, socioeconomic problems, and all of that. So I just want to keep your eye open. Make sure you tell that your loved ones that you love them and maybe not even your loved ones, just everyone around you 
it's usually the best time for people forgiving and being friendly to the people around them. But just remember when you're in the store fighting people for shoes and products that the reason why we're doing it, the reason why we're buying that as a gift for our loved ones and just trying to keep it as positive as possible so that most the majority of people can have a positive experience this holiday Christmas and or whatever religion that you holiday religion whatever you believe or celebrate or all of that so keep that mind out there so that was our fun fact of the day it wasn't that fun but it kind of goes along with what we're going to be talking about so I think everyone is pretty aware about what's happening in the media right now with Centoya Brown's case uh, if you are not aware I advise you to go look up that case before you listen to this podcast just so you can get a better idea. I'll give you kind of a recap, but then I'm also going to put in together the documentary that was made back in the early 2000s, uh, 2010, 2011, and then also um, all the news articles that have come out. I've kind of taken all that information, put it together just stripped it and I'm trying to get a really good view not only for myself but for others about this case and really finding a stance on all the little issues and maybe not just the big issue at whole as well. So before we get into all the craziness of this case I just want to say that this episode of Talk Taboo isn't going to be the most exciting it's not going to be the funniest episode you've ever heard but it is an issue that is impacting a lot of us right now in the United States and I want to make sure that we have all the facts and we're addressing it. I've had some people request that I I'm not biased in this podcast and I just relay the facts and as much as I am going to do that, I'm also going to bring in a very medical, I guess nursing perspective and care of Centoya. I don't have a any kind of legal background so legally most of this stuff is what I've gotten from the internet so if any of this is legally wise if this is wrong I think I pretty much got it right but I just don't have any big insights on all the legal issues. I do have some ideas and I I don't even know if some of them can um, are actually a, a thing. So if you do have legal background and you're listening to this, comment or message me and we can bring it up for the next episode. Or if you want to be on the podcast, that would be cool too. So yeah, I'm going to bring up uh, a psych psych and medical nursing aspect towards that because that's what my background is in. So hang tight. It's just going to be me on here today. I just really wanted to get it out there and wrap it up for everybody in a timely manner. I didn't really have time to have someone on the podcast with me, so hang in there. But it is some really good information. I think there's some really good viewpoints from what I have or what I've heard as well. So if you are interested, please hang in there with me and listen. Okay, so let's see. I I just want to say that this case has received so much publicity and media across the board. Kim Kardashian and Rihanna have actually reached out on Twitter and publicly about this case. And Kim Kardashian has actually hired her legal team to help the clemency of Centoya in the next few weeks here ahead of us. So um, Centoya Brown was a 16 year old female 
who was a victim of sex trafficking. One of the men who purchased her, not her pimp, but the man who purchased her one night was a 42-year-old man named Johnny Allen. And he purchased her. And later that day, she ended up shooting him in the head, stealing some money, a rifle, and his wallet from him. And then was tried as an adult in court for first-degree murder, first-degree felony murder, and burglary. This was in 2006. The incident was in 2004. But the reason why this case is really being brought up again right now is because they're motioning for her clemency as of, I think it was last Thursday. By the time this podcast comes out, it was two Thursdays ago. And they're really trying to get clemency on her so that all these charges are dropped. In 2012, the Supreme Court ruled that juveniles who are receiving a life sentence without parole is cruel and unusual punishment. Centoya would be eligible for parole when she is 69 years old. Once we get into the case a little bit more, um, back then in 2006, her lawyers tried to claim self-defense and that was denied which is why she got all of these these charges so before we get into the case and what actually went down with the lawyers and the self-defense claim and all of that good stuff i want to get into her background i want to go into centoya's life from birth so we're going to go along this journey with her as she was born So, Centoya was born to a 16-year-old mother. She was born into a dysfunctional family. Let's just say that, and we'll explain why. So, she was born to a 16-year-old mother with fetal alcohol syndrome. Centoya was born with fetal alcohol syndrome. And I want to go into that a little bit because it's really a key player in her mental health and her developmental and cognitive health and development through her life. So fetal alcohol syndrome is obviously when you are, when the baby is born addicted to alcohol because the mother had drank during pregnancy. Now, Centoya's mom admits to drinking every single day of her pregnancy, almost every single day. She was an alcoholic And some things besides physical effects of fetal alcohol syndrome, which are a little bit irrelevant to this, I'm going to go on to the brain and nervous system effects, the social behaviors, and all of that stuff that really could have affected Centoya, and as we can see through her case, actually did affect Centoya. So fetal alcohol syndrome can cause intellectual disability, learning disorders, delayed development. So basically we say... We, we talk about people and mostly children about their actual age, their birth age, and then their developmental age. So we can have, you know, a, a kid that is eight years old, but has developmental age of a four-year-old, things like that. So yeah, this, this kind of development is delayed. They can also have poor memory, trouble with attention and processing information, difficulty reasoning and problem solving, difficulty identifying consequences to their choices, poor judgment, hyperactivity, um, mood swings, 
And then on top of that, because of all these delays, they really have difficulty in school, trouble getting along with others, poor social skills. They really have trouble adapting to change and switching from one thing to another or one household to another, which children actually who don't have fetal alcohol syndrome have that same, that same issue as well, where it's the more that you adapt and the more that you have to change your environment or living situation, it hinders just a regular child's pediatric uh, and cognitive development. And then they also have, you know, a poor concept of time, planning towards a goal. I mean, you name it. They're more likely to have drug and alcohol abuse issues. They're more likely to be sexually outward and participate in risky sexual behaviors. So because that cognitive and that thinking and consequence, a part of their frontal lobe hasn't developed yet, we oftentimes don't use birth control or condoms because just we don't realize the consequences of being pregnant or getting an STD or all of that kind of stuff. So I really do say that kids that are born with fetal alcohol syndrome, they're born behind in life. They really are. And to try and get them back to developmental level takes a lot of work. And unfortunately, kids that are usually born into fetal alcohol syndrome, they're not really born into families that are going to help them do that. So it really puts them at a delay in life in general. It really puts them behind other kids their age. I want to talk about Centoya's mom. So Centoya's mom's side of the family was just loaded with psychiatric disorders as well. And we know that some psychiatric disorders have a genetic component to them. So Centoya's mom had suicidal and homicidal thoughts to the people that had raped her. And people as in multiple people, she had multiple rapes throughout her life, which resulted in suicidal and like I said, homicidal, homicidal thoughts. She was also manic, which could indicate bipolar or not. They didn't indicate if she did have bipolar. Centoya's mother watched her mother shoot herself in the head when she was in second grade. Her aunt also committed suicide. Her grandpa committed suicide. And the other, her other aunt had multiple attempts of suicide. So this all runs on Centoya's mother's side of the family. So after Centoya was born, her mother drank for about eight months after Centoya was born through her pregnancy and eight months after. And then about eight months, she got addicted to crack cocaine. She was arrested for drugs and then went to jail. So in Centoya's and dad is out of the picture. I haven't heard anything about dad. So we might not even know who dad is. You know, if dad was a 16 year old like her mother or if he was an older man, we we don't know. So again, there's no father figure having one parent who's unstable already at risk for all of these other developmental delays. So in Centoya's first two years of life, she stayed with six to seven different families Just that alone, we just talked about how going from family to family and your body having to change already impacts development. I talked on another podcast how divorced kids and kids of military families have some of these same developmental and social difficulties because kids need routine. They like routine and it helps them be able to focus on other things when they know something is going to be the same every day. 
So from being six to seven different families in her first two years, a lot of people will say, well, she doesn't remember. She was only less than two. Well, research has shown that the first two years and sometimes the first three years of a child's life is actually the most critical time of their life. Even if you they can't physically understand, their brain is rapidly developing and they may not remember, but it will be delayed because of that. Now, in her first two years of her life, she was also physically and sexually abused by family members. And the details of that were very unclear, but she was with six to seven different families. Also during that two years, she was kidnapped by a family member. And all of this disruption really puts, I mean, you can just say there's all dis, all kinds of disabilities that, uh, psychological disabilities that she could have from this. We're talking, you know, growing up with anxiety, attachment disorder, separation anxiety, social anxiety disorder, more likely for mood swings and mood disorders, conduct disorder, depressive disorder. I mean, I could go on and on, but basically she is at risk because of all these factors. And these factors are just piling and piling on. Like, don't forget, I say one thing has a risk factor and then this thing has a risk factor and she just has all of them. All right, moving on. So she lived with her adoptive parents and she was two. So her adoptive parents ended up adopting her when she was two. She has two sisters. Her mom thought they had a really great relationship with each other. However, when Satoya uh, yeah, Satoya was interviewed, she said that my mom wants me to be perfect just like my sisters. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there. And then her father would often hit her. So she was constantly getting abused. Um, her adoptive mother said that as she was growing up, she became really manipulating, controlling. She became very possessive over her adopted mom and that's because that shows me that she is striving for attachment. She's striving for attention. And that's the closest thing that she has to that. And she is so afraid that someone's going to take that away from her. Attachment disorder is really common in children, especially when parents aren't really there. And that child doesn't form that attachment within the first two to three years of life. Like we said, this is the most critical part of psychological development here. So she never got that. So all these risk factors are, are boiling up. She runs away when she was 16 years old. Now, kids in the United States that run away, they have a 50% chance of running into a trafficker within the first 48 hours that they have run away. So the fact that Centoya ran into a trafficker is just common and no one's surprised. All right, you shouldn't be surprised. So she ran into Cut. Cutthroat is his name. This is Pimp Daddy over here. Um, she lived with him for three weeks at different motels. So I want to point out, she was, I, I hate to say the word, only trafficked, but she was only trafficked for three weeks, which is people, for the amount of time that people are actually in trafficking, this is a very short amount of time. She lived in different hotels. The first time he abused her, he beat her until she was unconscious because she said to him, you're a joke. He would often drag her by her hair across the room. He would tell her to strip when other men were there to have sex with her. And when she wouldn't strip or have sex with them, he would hold a gun to her head. 
Cutthroat would rape her while she was bawling and crying and begging for him to stop. This is the most typical textbook trafficking case in the United States. A girl born into drugs, a dysfunctional family with psychiatric conditions, with no stable family life or no stable parent or guardian or role model in her life that ends up running away into a trafficker who tells her that he's going to give her whatever she wants and whatever she needs and that he's going to take care of her. I mean, it's just so typical. It's insane. And this is where I am like, where are our nation's prevention system uh, being implemented here because this is I, I mean I could tell you this from the time she was born she was at risk for this I mean this is part of what went against taboo is is really trying to implement some kind of system to put in and say we're cutting the line here because this girl is just has so many risk factors even though this is a typical case this isn't always the case some girls that are sold into sex trafficking or manipulated into sex trafficking become from middle, upper class socioeconomic statuses, all different races, all different religions. So when I say that sex trafficking has no discrimination, they have no discrimination. Even boys aren't a discrimination. Are girls more common? Yes. But being a boy isn't doesn't mean that you're never going to get sex trafficked. Usually they're younger boys who are kind of going through the same thing. And obviously girls are more on the market because, I mean, girls are just sexually more wanted. Even sex lesbian porn on the internet is the top search for men and women. Women love having sex with women or the idea of having sex with women too. So even though the heterosexual male is the top purchaser of sex in the United States, you can still get it across the board on either side of buying or or uh, being victimized. Centoya made a list of all the men that she had sex with, and she had sex with 36 men when this was taken. So um, since 2014, I guess, whatever, irrelevant, honestly, 2014, 2016. And I, I think a lot of people will listen to this and say, They'll either say, oh my gosh, that's a lot, or they'll say, oh my gosh, that's not very much. And I don't know what, I think we all have different preferences based on our backgrounds and our beliefs, but to me, a girl who is sex trafficked, that is not a lot of people. And now I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not downplaying what she went through at all. Like, it's more, thank gosh, that it was only 36 men, but... The fact that she was in a trafficker for three weeks and her total was 36 men, and I'm sure some of these men were her choice as well before she was trafficked, or girls. But and it does take pimps a lot longer sometimes to break these girls in, but she wouldn't have been a girl that would have taken a long time. She said one of the men woke up and just woke her up by sticking his dick in her ass, and uh, she asked him to stop and he wouldn't, so she got raped annually. Three of those... 36 were relatives, and 25 could be arrested for statutory rape. Statutory rape is rape of a minor. She also said in this documentary that she saw pornos where the girls would lay there and just take it. So she thought that's how sex was supposed to be. And that's, it's it's heartbreaking because every time I talk to parents too, and obviously she was a 
a, a special case, but even parents with kids that don't really have any risk factors for these kind of things and are raised correctly, the average age that a child sees pornography in our country is 10 years old. So anything that they are learning about sex is usually coming from pornography because we don't like to talk about sex until we get into high school, freshman year. Uh, I heard that some people, in at least in Nevada, they're having like sex ed at like fifth grade, but it's mostly like, here's how to make a baby. Here's how to put in a tampon. This is what, I don't even know if they do STDs, honestly. But basically what I'm saying is that our education system is very poor. Children aren't getting education at home from parents, extremely accurate information. One, because it's freaking awkward and parents don't like to talk to their kids. But two, because they don't know what they're talking about. And I say that lightly because I don't want to piss anyone off and say, oh, you don't know, whatever. But I'm telling you, I have studied just sex in general for a few years now. I know people that have studied sex for their entire lives. Uh, Sex therapists, clinical sexologists that say they don't know all the answers. America doesn't know all the answers. Research doesn't know all the answers. The world doesn't know all the answers. So to say that parents know exactly what they're doing is, you're just kidding yourself. It's a lie. To say I know exactly what I'm doing is also a lie. However, because it's so complex and the research is all over the board on some topics, Having your child taught by someone who knows what they're talking about and research this is is very important. Um, and I think a lot of parents' views kind of go off of what they think should be, but we're not actually looking about what is research telling us how we should look at our par- our children and what we should be teaching them at what age and blah, 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 all this stuff. So that was my little rant about that. Um, and about pornography, we're going to, pornography, we can't do one episode about pornography. We're going to implement in it into a lot of episodes because there's so many different dynamics. And as they come up, I want to talk about them. All right. That was my rant. Going back to Centulia. So during this interview, uh, during the documentary, the psychiatrist asked her why she didn't leave cutthroat or prostitution and this is a very common question for people who don't know how sex trafficking works and this is her response and I'm quoting her so this is in quotes you're not listening to me I made him money he told me I wasn't going to go anywhere he told me he'd kill me and he knew where my mother lives he choked me until I passed out he's not afraid to kill me that is just exactly textbook right there they can't leave you guys this is why we say uh, physically free, but not psychologically free. They are not chained to a bed like common pictures that we see. They are under control of these men simply by manipulation and fear. Fear is the biggest part. So she was manipulated into his hands. We don't even need to get into all the psychiatric conditions that she could have had, but just simply manipulating her, giving her what she wants, telling her that he loves her, that he will give her a bunch of money, he'll help her get away from her stepmom that she supposedly hated so much at the time. She's 16. We all hate our moms when we're 16. Promising her a better life, promising her out of her misery. Most likely she had depression and anxiety, and so he may have given her some kind of comfort at first, so she felt like she could trust him. So that was 
her background. Now, I want to get into the murder. So, August 6th, 2004, the incident occurred. She said she was at, with Cut, Cutthroat, at a motel. They were smoking, drinking, and having sex. She said that's the only thing that they ever did. He told her that she was a lazy piece of shit, and she needed to go out and make him some money. So she got dressed, went out, went over to East Nashville. This is where this is all going down is in Tennessee, Nashville. Uh, East Nashville is the sketchy part of Nashville. It's, it's just where a bunch of people go to prostitute themselves, to prostitute others, to buy prostitutes, blah, blah, blah. She was approached by a man in a white truck named Johnny Allen. They agreed on $150 for him to have sex with her for the night. She asked him if they could go to a motel nearby, and he said that his house was close and that no one was there, so he wanted to go there. So she hesitated, but she went to his house. Um, Technically, in her eyes right now, he has control over her. He bought her. She is now his property. When they got to the house, he was bragging that he was a sharp shooter in the army, and a lot of women want him for his money. He was showing her her guns. What this is, when we look at this and the manipulation factor of this, he's demonstrating importance. He's demonstrating dominance, power, and control. So by showing her all these guns and telling him how important he is, he's minimizing her. He's minimizing her importance and showing him that I have guns. I have power over you right now. This is a common manipulation tactic. She said at that point she was terrified because she knew how important he was, in quotes, just knew, and no one knew where she was. And she said, Cut didn't care, and no one knew, her stepmom didn't know, no one knew where she was. She could have gone missing and no one would know. She was, had anxiety and was fearful at that time. They were in bed, he was naked, he was stroking her. He grabbed her inner leg hard with dominance. When you grab someone hard and you pull them towards you, that is a sense of you're mine, I'm in control. She said immediately she was scared. The way he looked at me sent chills up my spine. I denied his advances. Obviously, she's probably terrified. And then she said, he looks at me with these intense eyes rolls over to the side of the bed to look would would look like to grab something and she said in that immediate minute he's not going to hurt me he's going to kill me she got out her gun that she had uh, a lot of pimps give their girls guns their girls got I'm now I'm even doing it pimps give the girls that they are trafficking guns in order for self-protection it's also a dominance thing over cut when he's not there over the johns that are buying her She said she got out her gun that Cut gave her and she shot him in the head. She then stole a gun and his wallet, which had, it said enormous amount of money in it. The money was never found. I think that's almost irrelevant. The fact was that she stole from him in general. It didn't matter how much. So this was, uh, this was, this, this was the story. So her lawyer claimed self-defense and, In the trial, you know, they brought up, well, you never actually saw a gun. 
And Allen's, uh, the man who bought her, who is dead now, the, the murdery, just kidding, <laughs> the dead man, the dead man's lawyer said to Santoya, he bought you food, you ate with him, he gave you a ride, you used his bathroom, and you used his bed to sleep, even or to rest, even though you didn't sleep. Basically, making her out to be some kind of terrible person who just wanted to get into her house to steal from him, using his food, using his bathroom, using all of his stuff, and then killing him. All right. There's a few things here that I want to address. These girls, girls like Centoya, they are out on the run. She's been living in motels. She's probably disgusting. She is in fight or flight mode. She doesn't know when she's going to get her next meal. She doesn't know when she's safe. She takes any chance she can to be safe. This is fight or flight. And I hate to, I hate to look at this like animalistic, but I'm going to explain why because it's a good uh, explanation to why she's like this. Animals, they don't have higher level processing. They go out, they get food, shelter, and they procreate. That's just what they do over and over and over again. And humans, when we don't have those, when we don't have these basic Maslow's hierarchy of needs, hierarchy of needs is you need physical first, and then you go up the ladder, and then you need, you know, uh, the psychological, the cognitive, all this stuff. She doesn't have this lower level met. She doesn't have her food, her shelter, her water, her physical safety. So she is in fight or flight mode. She needs to get food. She has to, she has to, she has to, she has to get this lower level meat. So the fact that she's getting food from him and shelter and a shower is just like, duh. She doesn't have these needs met. I have food, shelter, and shower, so I don't need to go to a random man's house to get those things because I have those needs met for me right now. This is exactly why how in third world, we don't call them third world, underdeveloped countries now like Nepal, Africa, they don't have these psychological conditions because they don't even have their physical lower bottom levels met. They don't have eating disorders and uh, schizophrenia and all this other stuff because they're here at a lower level. So this is where she's operating and Frankly, this is where she's always operated since she was born. Another thing that I want to talk about is they claimed that it wasn't self-defense. One of the reasons was she stole from him, but two, because she never saw a gun, which is obviously she saw guns in his house, but she never actually saw him like point a gun at her. And I don't know the laws, and I tried to look them up, and I just think it's a loaded question for me to actually go on the internet and look. But come on, this guy is 42. He bought a child in human trafficking for prostitution. He's laying naked in bed with a 16-year-old child. That's already statutory sexual assault. How much How much self-defense... I mean, at one point, do we call this self-defense of rape? Technically, this is self-defense of rape. Yes, he paid her $150. That's still illegal for both of them. I don't know exactly at the time of 2004 because these laws are continuing to progress. But however, it doesn't matter if there's money involved. She's a child 
he is naked with her in bed, taking her. You could even put that as kidnapping. I don't even know. But to say that because she didn't see a gun and she stole from him after is just absolutely insane. So I also want to talk about what might have been going through her mind when this situation was going down based on her psychiatric evaluation, but also on her history and what her psychiatric condition could be at the time. The psychiatrist said her affect and paranoia was linked to her killing criminal act, killing and criminal act, and probably was linked to a personality disorder. And then he had also deemed that while she was 16, she had the cognition of a 10 to 11 year old. And the doctor never took stand at trial. So her past and his professional psychiatric opinion was not played out at her trial, which is a fault in so many ways. But we have to think this was in 2006. Psych, Psych in general is fairly new. Even though he was able to diagnose her with these disorders in 2006, I think we've came a long way since then, but I still don't think this trial was carried out appropriately. So he most likely said that she had borderline personality disorder. When I first read her history, that's the first thing I thought of. Oh my God, she has borderline personality disorder. In my clinicals as in nursing school, I worked at a pediatric inpatient facility that primarily dealt with psychiatric conditions of teenagers and one of the huge units was personality or sorry borderline personality disorder now just based on her background she's like duh she has borderline personality disorder duh because she has every freaking risk factor for it borderline personality disorder is usually developed from all these impaired early life experiences Um, Those of you who don't know, borderline personality disorder is an emotional dysregulation disorder. So they really don't know how to handle any kind of emotion. So when you see, I don't know if any of you have seen people that just have unstable moods and they're lashing out. Like they, some of these kids would throw things, punch people, punch holes in walls, get on couches and punch holes in the ceilings, throw things, rip things, rip their hair out, cut themselves Um, try and kill themselves. They have high depression, anxiety, and suicidal behavior. They cannot handle emotions. And one thing that I strictly remember that I'll never forget that a PA told me while I was at this hospital is she said, when they're acting like that, they are telling us something. They are saying, I have needs that aren't being met, but I don't know how to communicate because their brain has never progressed in that sort of fashion so they don't know how to use their words because that would require higher level brain function which they do not have so when they're lashing out like this they're saying hello 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 help me help me help me I don't know what to do I I have something missing I have a need that's not being met this is commonly how she was and this is how she was in their decision for her to not take the stand at trial. They didn't think she was emotionally stable enough. Now, I want to say one thing about borderline personality. Even back in 2004, 2006, you cannot diagnose a minor with borderline personality disorder. You cannot 
really diagnose them with any kind of personality disorder because this could be such a, this is like almost, uh, you know, regards for some of the other stuff, but you could say, you could argue that this is normal teenager behavior, the manipulation, blah, 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 whatever. You know, those extreme teenager emotions, they don't know handle all these hormones that are going through their body. So they say that you can't diagnose personality disorders, especially borderline, until you're 18. Now, is there criteria and exceptions to this? Yes, but it's honestly really hard to do. However, I'm just thinking, instead of claiming self-defense, why did they not claim a psych defense? Because even though you can't diagnose her with what truly is most likely what she had at the time, you can still diagnose her with anxiety, stress-related mood disorders, um, depression, and even cluster B. So cluster B and all the clusters, you can say as pediatrics, oh, they're demonstrating signs and systems of cluster B, which is a portion of borderline personality disorder. And so if you see that, those trends in childhood, then you can often say when they're 18, okay, we've seen this for a year or more straight. She is borderline personality disorder. So I don't know why they didn't just smack some of this other crap on her because honestly, she probably has it. And now they're putting her to a situation where she's self-defense, where they don't talk about her background during the trial. I just don't even know how they thought. I mean, I get it. I get it to an extent. But um, it is it is pretty crazy, especially because they deemed her uh, 10 to 11-year-old cognition when she was 16 years old. Another thing that I think we should bring up is when they arrested her, keeping in mind she's 16 with a 10 to 11-year-old cognitive function, they read her her rights. But because she was 10 or 11, she didn't even really understand her rights. They talked to her about all of her rights, just like they're supposed to do when they arrest someone. However, they told her, if you admit to killing him, we'll give you a lighter sentence. And all she's thinking, fight or flight, I'm 10 to 11 years old cognition. She admitted to killing him. And clearly, because she didn't have any attorney present, it doesn't, they don't give a damn if they promised her a deal. They don't have to go back on that kind of word. And I just kind of want to also point out that if she was 18 years old when this happened and she could be tried as an adult, this is a death penalty sentence for Tennessee at the time. So she could be on death row. She could have been dead already if this just happened two years later in her life, which is absolutely insane to me. August 21st, 2006, the trial begins. Like I said, they didn't let her take the stand. The psychiatric and physicians refused to take the stand. Her past was not brought up. The defense claimed it was a premeditated robbery. I, I know that we have to have people take responsibility for their actions. And was her robbing this man after she killed him or robbing him at all ethical? No, not at all. But, I mean, you could even claim that she was in such a haze in her personality disorder from her past that even that should have been wiped. I know we can't just slap 
psychiatric disorders on everyone that goes through jail because frankly almost everyone in jail pretty much does not in jail but every murderer a huge majority of them actually do have psychiatric conditions which we're just now seeing and I do think she needs to be held responsible for that kind of action but look at what she's been through we talked about fight or flight she just thought she was gonna die she killed this man and she stole from him money which she needs to eat for eat shelter blah, blah 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 guns also for protection from where she is on the street this is so typical and i think it's kind of comical obviously not really comical how this case is taking the news and I, i'm not saying that it doesn't deserve to be in the news because it absolutely does but this 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 case that the girl has this happens every day you guys every single day and if that guy would have gotten a gun and shot her that would have been a typical case she dies he lives it doesn't make the media no one really gives a shit that she's gone and they go on with their life cutthroat gets another girl to sell johnny allen over here claims burglary and gets away with it and that's just how it is and that's how it happens all the time girls like her don't make it out alive and if they do it's rare once a child is in the life in the sex trafficking life she has an average of seven more years to live and that's from any kind of urinary or vaginal infections that end up going sepsis they go to septic shock and die broken bones that aren't treated trauma wounds to the chest and head that they die from accidental drug and alcohol overdose by their pimp or purposeful drug and alcohol or any kind of overdose or suicide that occurs because of the situation that they're in. All of these things commonly happen. So the one time that someone buying the girl dies, all hell breaks fucking loose, and we side with the guy who bought the 16-year-old girl. Now this Johnny Allen human was a real estate agent in Tennessee, he was a youth group leader of a Christian church. Now, I want to say this is also freaking typical. Someone who has a decent amount of money, white, divorced or married, involved with children, and religious, which means that he's probably sexually suppressed. All doing this on the side. And I'm sure when this came up, all of the people that knew him were just shocked and when I hear this, I'm like, fucking duh, open your eyes, America. This happens all the time. This is why it's crazy to me that people are shocked about how this, you know, nice, respected man in society purchased a child, but also how this pimp treated the child. I mean, this is just so typical. And I think I think this because I learn about it every single day. One thing that I've been asked to bring up was... Did it matter that Johnny was a straight white male and Centoya was, I think she was like half black or she's half white, half black or something or some kind of ethnicity, ethnicity, whatever, not white. I think that's the point. Not white, female, low socioeconomic status. That's how she grew up. Now, does... Does this matter for why this case has become so big? And does this matter for why this has made such huge news? I don't think it's the only reason, but do I think there's factors involved? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And back then, depending who was on the jury, depending who the judge was, all of this stuff, could that have been a factor? Absolutely. They probably made him out in court to be this nice, upstanding heterosexual white male in society where she is lower economic status because they didn't bring up her background, just a less than woman and human in society because she's robbing and she's the predator. And you know that's exactly how they brought it up. So did gender and race play a role in the decision? It could have. And I think maybe a little bit. I don't think that the way the the trial went and the way that they they prosecuted her <laughs> went very well either just based on the psychiatric portion of it. But And then I just have to bring this up too because this is just hilarious. And this is just from my own nursing experience. But I saw an article and it was talking about how when they first arrested her and brought her to a psych facility, how she was being mean to the nurses and hitting nurses and throwing things and threatening the nurses. And I just laughed because it just made her seem like this like piece of shit female. And I'm like, if any of you guys have spent one day in a psych ward, this is how it is. This is what we're used to. They act like she's like some crazy case and it's just like, Gosh, it's hilarious. We deal with that every single day. And like we talked about with her borderline personality is this was how she's saying I have a need that's not being met. So that alone shows me that she's a typical psychiatric patient and she should probably try it as a psychiatric patient. Now, it's just funny because they tried to you know, bring it around and make her seem horrible when really I was I think it was kind of proving their case even though they didn't know that. So think what you want about this case. And I think everyone has different opinions, but that was really my uh, nursing opinion. Um, Two other things that I want to bring up that she said and did before we wrap up. I'm sorry. I know this is long and bleh, but we're, we're getting there, I promise. So she said that all men want acceptance, admiration, They're entitled, selfish, and all they want is for people and women to respect and admire them. She's she's kind of smart. Side note to the side note, she's actually obtained her GED and she's about to obtain her bachelor's in jail right now, which is awesome. Glad glad that she's she's moving on. But even at the age of 16, when this was when she said this stuff, it was hilarious because that is so true and we find that a lot of men who rape or buy prostitutes or even sell prostitutes I say prostitutes but you know what I meant trafficked girls they actually they just want someone to respect them they want to be admired just like all of us we all want to be that so a lot of times we take that and we're like she said we're they're selfish and entitled and they think that they are entitled to that girl that they can take whatever they want from her and that their opinions don't matter and they're she said he god he like groped me and stuff like I actually was admiring him and respecting him like come on like that's all that he wanted her to do was to admire and respect him she's like why the hell would I admire or respect you and here I just think that we have some kind of messed up state of mind here about how we obtain that and how those viewpoints are actually coming across on both ways. I think it's, I think that's very interesting. Um, 
to all all rape and sex trafficking. The last thing is while she was in prison, she cut her hair and she said being attractive gets you into a lot of trouble. People hurt you. So she thought that by cutting her hair, she wouldn't be attractive and people wouldn't hurt her anymore. This is important. A lot of women who are sexually abused have this sort of mentality. They are the women who stop taking care of themselves. They cut their hair a certain way. They don't want to stand out in society, so it's often not like blue or all that stuff. They don't wear revealing clothing. They don't take care of their bodies. They don't go to the doctor. They are usually eventually very obese. A lot of people make fun of people that are obese and are disgusted almost by it, which is terrible. But if you actually look, and this is one of the things that I did a lot in the hospitals, when I had an obese woman, I would look at her chart and nine times out of 10, she actually was sexually assaulted. And I'm not talking just obese. I'm talking severely obese. And either way, uh, it's a protective mechanism saying, if I'm obese, no one will like me. Going against what society thinks is beautiful. So that's kind of what Centoya did here. She cut her hair and said, if I cut my hair, I have a less chance of being raped or abused or taken advantage of. You know, a lot of times I'll see very obese homeless women. That's what they use all their money for as a protective mechanism. That's what they use it for. They would rather eat than be sheltered in the cold because being sheltered in the cold doesn't stop you from being raped. And I'm not saying that this tactic actually works. I'm just saying this is how our brains ended up being rewired. We go against societal views in order to protect ourselves from being a victim, even though they might not work. So that's just one of the ways that our brains are actually rewired I would love to hear anyone's opinions on this. If anyone has more legal knowledge than I do, um, her clemency is within the next few weeks. I will keep all of you guys updated on the decision of her clemency, but hopefully Centoya can get out of prison. She's been there for 13 years now. Hopefully she can get out and eat, you know, I want everyone to realize that even when she does get out, she has a long road ahead of her. She has a lot of things that she's going to need to work out. She has a lot of skills that she lacks that she didn't get as a child. This isn't just going to be a, you're free, enjoy your life. She has, a, she has a lot ahead of her. She has a long road. So that's something that we also want to keep in, keep in mind and hopefully that she gets the help that she needs and hopefully this clemency is is granted so thank you guys for listening I'm again I'm sorry that it was a bleh, just me talking episode but I have some really fun episodes coming up in the next few weeks I've actually already recorded them because I'm in Seattle now so they're yep they're coming up in the next few weeks so stay tuned for those follow me on Instagram at I am Taylor Stafford go to www.womanagainsttaboo.org and ask me all of your sex questions and then I just put a little questionnaire up there. So if you're interested in being on my podcast, we can either do it by phone across the United States or world, I guess. Or if you're in the Seattle Tacoma area, let me know. Thank you guys.